Hello to Asthma Open Podcast. Today, it's my pleasure to interview Dr. Paluk Shimon, Director of Oncology and Director of the Breast Cancer Program on the magnitude of clinical benefit scale in adjuvant treatment of breast cancer. Thank you so much, doctor, for taking the time. So coming to my first question, can you maybe give us a little bit of an insight? What does the magnitude of clinical benefit scale actually measure? So the magnitude of clinical benefit scale is a validated value scale for solid tumor anti-cancer treatments. It's also being validated for hematological treatments as well. And it's divided up into separate forms. So there's a form one, which is to assess treatments that have curative intent. And there's form two, which is to assess treatments with non-curative intent. And it's really important that we have a validated objective pool for evaluating new therapies, and particularly as cancer costs skyrocket across the world. And I think even now with um, the example of what's going on with, um, with, with the COVID crisis, we can see that we're going to have um, even more restrictions and restraints on our health budgets. And so we need to be to have wise tools to help us um, define which are the treatments that have greatest value and have the greatest magnitude of clinical benefit. Thank you for giving us this introduction. So maybe you can give us a little bit of an insight. What is measured in the adjuvant versus the palliative um, setting and the palliative studies in breast cancer? Well, I think what's important to remember is that, it, that what has the highest value in the tool are treatments that have um, value in improving survival, so increasing overall survival, or, or in the case of non-curative treatment, prolonging survival. So that is, has, that is what has the greatest value and weight. And there are different, um, different criteria that are each given scoring, that are weighted scores, that help bring, um, define an overall score for the new therapy that's been evaluated. Um, and so the sorts of things that might be looked at in the curative setting would be um, hazard ratios for disease-free survival. Um, it might look at overall survival. Um, the current um, form for Form 1 doesn't look at um, toxicities at present, um, but more at the issue of um, benefit in disease-free survival and overall survival. There's also a category for improvements in neoadjuvant therapies for pathologic complete response. Um, in the non-curative settings, um, it's slightly, the form is built differently and the criteria are different in there. Um, the criteria look at um, magnitudes of benefit in progression-free survival, um, where of course any prolongation in median survival, overall survival, trumps in improvements in progression-free survival. Um, at, but what really distinguishes between the curative and the non-curative intent um, forms is the issue of, um, of toxicity as well. And so in the non-curative forms, um, any benefit that is seen really needs to um, translate into a benefit that either, if it doesn't improve quality, it should hopefully improve quality of life. Um, and if it, it doesn't improve quality of life, it needs to also be demonstrated in those studies that there is no significant um, um, adverse toxicities that have a negative impact on quality of life. But that would be the key things that distinguish between the different forms. Thank you so much for this explanation. My next question would be, which studies were evaluated in the current manuscript? Which one were um, evaluated on their magnitude of clinical benefit scale? 
So we identified representative key studies and meta-analyses in early breast cancer. Um, the only studies that can generally be scored using the magnitude of clinical benefit scale are generally phase three studies um, that are randomised control studies and they need to have been peer-reviewed and published um, in order to be scored. And so we chose the representative key studies. We identified 65 studies that were eligible for evaluation. Um, there were 59 individual studies and six meta-analyses. And um, the, all these studies together incorporated approximately 101 therapeutic comparisons, 61 which were scorable. So for something to be scorable um, beyond meeting the criteria of the data being generated from a phase three study and having undergone peer review and publication, you also need to have the criteria or the data in the study or available to you from the authors in order to score um, to, to score and evaluate um, using the scale. I will add that there are some exceptions to the phase three rule, so that in the metastatic setting, particularly for orphan diseases, um, you can score phase two studies. And in the, in the um, early breast cancer setting, um, neoadjuvant studies can also be scored, even though they don't yet provide usually a disease-free or survival or, outs or overall survival. The only thing that really distinguishes that then is that a study looking at a neoadjuvant study looking at PATH-CR can only get the lowest grade score of a grade C um, until there's further adjuvant data available um, in the early setting. Wow, that is a lot of data that was included in this um, analysis. So given this large amount of studies that you actually analyzed, can you give us maybe a few highlights of this analysis it's displaying the magnitude of clinical benefit scale for one of the most important adjuvant treatments in breast cancer? Um, so I think that probably, I think I will just start off by saying overall that we did the scoring and then the scoring was actually sent out to members of the ESMO breast faculty to see that they felt that the, a review or a panel by experts for reasonableness. So reasonableness is, is a, one of the a key concepts in magnitude of clinical benefit scale um, model. Um, and so that was also part of the evaluation. And so in terms of reasonableness, um, there was overall, there was a consensus amongst the panel reviewers of the scores that were generated. Um, and there were very few areas where there was um, lack of, um, where the reviewers thought that it may not be reasonable. I think that the score or the scale um, very strongly reflected, for example, um, the significant benefits seen by the highest level of scoring um, and greatest benefit in a curative setting. We also see that um, the dual blockade studies um, in anti-HER2 settings, um, one scored a B and one scored an A. Um, and this was interesting because this caused some um, lack of consensus amongst the um, reviewers who felt that maybe the scoring was too high, for, for example, for the dual blockade treatment. When we look at the second generation of anti-HER2 therapy, such as TDM1, um, in the Catherine study, in the post-neoadjuvant setting, that scored um, a grade of an A. What was interesting to see was that if we go back to um, other studies um, look, that are older, looking at the benefits of platinum agents, um, sorry, of, of taxanes, and taxanes really form the backbone of a lot of our chemotherapy today, what we can see is that the taxanes on the individual studies did not score particularly highly. Um, so many of the taxane studies 
at an individual level did not translate into an overall survival benefit. Many of them scoring, um, or not scoring at all, or scoring a, a B or a C. Um, and or, but most of them, in fact, were scored not evaluable because there was no significant survival benefit in the mature survival data. Um, however, in the meta-analysis where the data had been pooled, there was a benefit in survival for the taxanes, and this resulted in a C grading. And it's interesting because I think that if people were to instinctively um, guess how a taxane would be graded, we would assume that a taxane would be graded an A or a B because it's our backbone of therapy. But in fact, the individual studies, many of them didn't score. And only in, a, in the setting of a meta-analysis was there a score of a C. And how would you now incorporate these findings in clinical practice? What do you think are the main take-home messages for daily practice? Well, I think there are several things that need to be taken into consideration. Before we go to, I think overall the tool was very robust. And the tool, for the most part, the scoring using the tool largely reflected clinical practice. So um, anything that is, you know, part of clinical guidelines, for the most part, scored, whether it's scored on an individual study level or on a meta-analysis level, but, you know, almost all standard of cares that are recommending guidelines do score and generally score well. Um, I think there are some important messages for us as a research community, but also there were important points um, that were reflected back to the working group that will be reflected in future versions of the, of the Magnetic Clinical Benefit Scale. It's important to remember that what's unique about this publication and this study was that this is the first large-scale field testing in early breast cancer. Extensive field testing was done in the advanced settings, but less so in early breast cancer. And so we found some very interesting shortcomings. So first of all, the hazard ratio thresholds for disease-free survival were possibly too lenient because based on disease-free survival, many of these studies would score very highly. But when you looked at their long-term data and there was mature overall survival data, then the scoring would drop or even become, you know, not the, the drug wouldn't rate as a, or get any score. So I think it is a reminder that long-term follow-up is important. Um, and that's something they're going to also give some consideration to in the next version. Um, we also see that in the, in the curative setting, the scoring mechanism um, didn't look at absolute benefits in disease-free survival, but rather just at hazard ratios or relative benefits. Whereas in the non-curative setting, um, there were constraints placed on the absolute gains. So in the next version um, of the MCBS score, they're going to add um, um, some constraints on absolute benefits in disease-free survival, what doesn't happen at the moment, because um, it was felt that some of the studies where there was very small absolute benefits, but the hazard ratio met criteria for grading, that sometimes these studies were scored um, in a way that, overly, um, that were overly optimistic in terms of the clinical benefit. Um, other limitations was that um, at present, the magnitude of clinical benefit guideline doesn't define um, how we define overall survival, maturity of overall survival data. And in the case of breast cancer, we know that the maturity um, of data really is dependent on, um, on the subtype uh, or the subgroup of disease. So a triple negative breast cancer 
by five years, we have mature data. But in endocrine-positive disease, we need much more um, or much longer follow-up to define um, uh, in order to meet the, the criteria or the defi definition of mature survival. And that really needs to be defined by the working group. Um, currently, the scale doesn't have the capacity to grade single-arm de-escalation studies, such as the APT study um, or studies that looked at you know, Taxol and, or Paclitaxel and Trastuzumab in the early breast cancer setting. And that is important because we are seeing more and more de-escalation studies and they are often not phase three and they're certainly not randomised and we need to be able to score these studies. Um, and I think the other important thing, and I think this is actually an important method, the, the scale in the curative setting at the moment doesn't really give a lot of weighting or doesn't give any weighting actually to toxicity. And we often forget about toxicity in the adjuvant setting, but sometimes the toxicity is long-term and sometimes it is irreversible. So I think it's something we need to remember in clinical practice with our patients and we need to share this information with our patients. But hopefully this issue is also going to be addressed in the next version of the Magnitude of Clinical Benefit Score. If I had to sum it up, I would say that clinicians can use the Magnitude of Clinical Benefit Scale um, as a reliable, robust tool to help them when evaluating where, where treatments have the greatest benefit, particularly for new therapies. Um, this is helpful not just in clinical practice and not just in developing guidelines, but this is something that might be used also by regulatory authorities when deciding um, which drugs to include um, in national healthcare schemes. And this is already happening in several countries. Before we finish, I'd really like to thank uh, the members of the working group and my co-authors, and um, with a, a special thank you to um, to Nathan Cherney um, for all of his guidance and time, but also to Fatima Cardozo um, for thinking about this project with Nathan Cherney and the importance that it has for us as a breast oncology community. And finally, thank you to all the ESMO breast faculty who agreed to um, assess and review all the scores generated by the study. Thank you so much for the interview. And for all of you who are interested, you find the full paper on the magnitude of clinical benefit scale measurements in adjuvant breast cancer treatment um, on the ESMA open homepage. See you soon.